Hello. Hello. This is Joya Italiano. And this is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to No But That's a Thing. A podcast where we talk about the science ideas that are contained in sci-fi movies. Yeah, neither of us are experts in any of these things, but we care about them and we feel like we can make it interesting for you. So we Googled some stuff after watching a movie and here we go. Here we go. Oh, I like that. Sup, peeps? How's everybody doing? Hold for response. As always. Great. So we watched the movie The Thing. Yeah, we did. 1982's John Carpenter's version, Mm -hmm. not the original, which actually was based on a short story by John W. Campbell Jr., Mm -hmm. Who Goes There? That's what it's called? That was the name of it. Who Goes There? Yeah, but let's take a quick listen to the trailer. years it was buried in the snow and ice now it has found a place to live inside where no one can see it or hear it or feel it i know i'm human some of you are still human this thing doesn't want to show itself it wants to hide inside an imitation it'll fight if it has to but it's vulnerable out in the open if it takes us over then it has no more enemies nobody left to kill it and then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? We can beat one of those things! So there that was. Yep. So <laughs> Kurt Russell is in the Arctic and a thing that can become human beings after it kills them and then perfectly represent them. You don't know who's who, who's yeah. an alien. Right. Who goes there? Who? <laughs> now it all makes <laughs> yeah. sense in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of different elements in this movie that are really cool. You have a lot of sweet practical effects, but then you and then you have like alien story, but then mm-hmm. also this idea of paranoia and like not being able to trust anybody because mm-hmm. that's the thing. Whatever this creature is hides in you. <laughs> Inside you. you. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this is John Carpenter, and according to him, he has said that this is his favorite movie that he made, yeah. but it, it didn't receive a very good accolades at first. They fucking hated it. Now, a really interesting fact about the when it came out, it was released two weeks after E.T. And the day of... Blade Runner. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> well, because Blade Runner was also one of those that at first, when it was released, it wasn't high, like very well reviewed. It was yeah, kind of mixed. Yeah, that one's gone through like a ton of different yeah. edits since the release, the theatrical release. Really? And, like, people prefer yeah. what they call the final cut, because mm-hmm. there's also the director's cut, and then there's, there's a million cuts of Blade yeah. Runner. But it is really interesting that like E.T., and Blade Runner just sucked all of the air out of the room right. for the thing. Well, and E.T. was such a complete, it's like the opposite end of the spectrum. Look of at like, how wonderful the what aliens are. E.T. was your best friend that you had to hide, and it was a coming-of-age tale. Yeah. You know, this is precisely there the opposite. There were no Reese's Pieces in the thing. <laughs> no, there were no, no adorable Drew Barrymore's. Nope. No, none of that. Adorable um, Kurt Russell's. They no, had those. Yeah, that hair, my God, his I mean, flowing locks. Yeah, he's what a hunk. He's so great. I love yeah. his beard in this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the writer of the screenplay of this had previously written the Bad News Bears. 
Really? Yeah. Oh my god. So not the same kind of screenplay. Eclectic taste. I mean, it, to me, it's just interesting to set, like put it in context of when it was released. Because right. to us, we only look at shit in retrospect and we're like, "That's a classic. It must have always been." Right. But to think right. when some of these seriously iconic movies were first released and people are like, "What the fuck is that?" It makes sense to me because I can see somebody seeing this and being like, "It's just trying to gross you out," and there totally. isn't really that much there. But then on another viewing, you're like, "There's so much tension in this movie," and the feeling of being at this remote, isolated Antarctic research right. facility. like Oh, yeah. Like, the sense of environment is really solid. I mm. mean, because they filmed it in British Columbia, but it's supposed to take place in Antarctica. So the, already that kind of, like, isolation that you mm. feel there, let alone, you know, the cold factor, everything. That yeah. They just, you know, like, as a survival game, you're like, fuck, the stakes are high. Yeah, and they actually shot most of the scenes that were inside on a studio here in LA, right. but they refrigerated the room. Uh-huh. So they actually were shooting it at cold. Oh yeah. Anyway, so basically I just thought it was interesting. People thought that this movie was like some of the, the terrible reviews it got was like, the, the it's the new aesthetic atrocity for atrocity's sake. And John Carpenter mm-hmm. was never meant to direct science fiction horror movies. He's better suited to direct traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings. Oh, suck it, I know. It's also like, bro, buckle up, buckaroos. When you think of now in 2017, the amount of gore and gratuitous violence that we show on just TV now. I don't know, though. The thing was pretty. Pretty gross. Gross. I think for a 1982 sensibility, it had to have been over the top. And the coolest thing about. I think it's over the top for today. Yeah. Although it's. For me, it's just like, I look at all those jelly packets. Well, yeah. (laughs) I just think it was really funny where, like, because there's so many practical effects in this, and, like, they just let you look at Mm -hmm. these monsters. Like, for a long time, it'll just hang on this horrifying shot of, like, a... super juicy. Yeah, and you were just like, everybody's covered in jam. (laughs) Everybody in this movie's covered in jam. First of all, where did this thing from outer space come from? How did mm. it get here? That's what started my research. And really, that's a bigger question, even like, how did we get here? Because, of course, so many theories in terms of how humans came to be or like how the initial cells came to be. If that's Life on planet Earth. Right. Like Because it, life seemed if, to have shown up like as soon as it could after right. the formation of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And we don't know if it was built here yeah. or if it came from somewhere else. Exactly. Like it, the theory of like the primordial ooze or whatever, that mm. that's just like this weird concoction, this mixture. A soupy stew yeah, of soupy bubbly stew humanity. Of, yeah, that eventually we came from. Or we, maybe we came from somewhere else in the universe mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe some bit of life or some biological pieces, I guess, <laughs> yeah. took a rise on an asteroid and found its way here. Well, we've even talked about before the idea that life on Earth actually started on Mars and then an asteroid hit Mars and ejected it out into orbit around the sun and then it eventually landed on Earth and seeded life here. Right. So, okay, so life somehow transplanting from planet to planet is called panspermia. Didn't know that term before, but Mm -hmm. I'm like, come on, I'm going to put sperm right in. But I guess it makes sense if if you're just populating. That's exactly what it is. You're just... Yeah. All over the planet. Oh, puke. Yeah. Yeah. So basically. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to do that. Yeah. The idea is the panspermia, some form of life, even if it's very simple, could at least get here and then have the opportunity to evolve from there. So well, if a comet is made of ice water mm-hmm. and something can survive having been frozen and then reanimated, some extremophiles, mm-hmm. bacteria that we know can do that. Some forms of life can sustain the really intense conditions in space, but mm-hmm. then there's other theories that say no I mean for for that amount of time and for that many light years maybe it's not necessary that that organism has to be alive maybe it can be dead and like you said Mm. revived that's called necropanspermia necropanspermia yeah correct 
do we like if we were to go out into the mm-hmm. universe if we were supposed would we to spread our seed our... yeah would we pimp <laughs> spermia ourselves around and we've yeah. talked about this a ton on the show of like Elon Musk saying that we we can't we have to be a multi-planetary species yep. right yep. in order to sustain ourselves so as life continues to die or like the planet destroys itself here we kind of need to be well yeah there there are ideas about like if we can't actually crack faster than light travel and never actually go to these other places, mm-hmm. we might be able to send out clones of us or sperms of us right. in order to land on another planet and then actually start their whole life. There is something innate in humanity to continue humanity. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about just the other day, this great Star Trek episode mm-hmm. where they come across a probe that was sent up by an ancient civilization that mm-hmm. had died out. And the probe was only there to keep their memory alive. Mm -hmm. And they come across this and it basically tells the story of these people. And they continue to live on in people's memories in the future by coming across this probe, Mm -hmm. even though the civilization is dead. If we were faced with the sun is going to die in the next 20 years, and we know that there's no way for us to get off this planet and actually survive in that amount of time, could we do something Mm-hmm. In order to continue our legacy on beyond that, let's would it talk be about sending? that. Well, first things first. Why why do people even think that this is a possibility that life from other planets could have gotten here, whether through some sort of asteroid impact or whatever? Mm-hmm. It's because there are types of meteorites that are found on Earth that are known to originate from Mars. Their isotopic signature is identical to measurements made by the Armada of robots currently orbiting and roving on Mars. I like so, that an Armada of yeah. robots that we have. We are Robot Armada. We are ready to rock your fucking well, face like, off. We are the Spanish coming to invade. I know. <laughs> like what? We're the robots. Yeah. Okay. So we have three little cars. So what you're talking about? I'm just gonna drive right <laughs> over whatever oh, you're talking please about. Please do. Please do. Rove right over it. I will. If we as humans had the opportunity to send ourselves out there for survival, that is called directed panspermia. So instead okay. of it being this kind of general concept of like, oh, an asteroid hit, but then somehow these tiny little organelles got hooked on. This uh-huh. is the idea of like. Like a civilization that is sophisticated, able to be like, bam, let's let's go there. Yeah. So I read a couple of great articles in, in Seeker magazine, and one of them was discussing Michael Motner, who's he's a research professor of chemistry at Virginia Commonwealth University. He submitted a paper to the Journal of Cosmology in 2010, and he himself was saying how much he believes that we need to ship Earth brand. This is a trademark. Earth brand. Uh-huh biology to suitable adopted homes so our revolutionary line has a chance to gain a foothold somewhere else in the universe and he goes on to say quote we have a moral obligation to plan for the propagation of life and even the transfer of human life to other solar systems which can be transformed via microbial activity thereby preparing these worlds to develop and sustain complex life securing that future for life can give our human existence a cosmic purpose basically feeling like there is a moral obligation to to do such mm-hmm, a thing mm-hmm. now he in the paper proposes sending a variety of basic organisms to potentially fertile worlds throughout the universe over 500 light years away and they he far. wants to use yeah pretty far he wants to use early earth organisms as an example like you know cyanobacteria that could be sent to alien worlds and do some sort of crazy reproduction and basically create life in the same way that he assumes it took place here yeah my initial reaction to that is like if we're doing this directed thing and it's not mm-hmm. because we have to mm-hmm. but it's because like hey let's do that for fun i feel like we should take the time to learn about those planets and indeed detail before we go and do this right like i was watching planet earth 2 the other day 
and there's this invasive species of ant that they call crazy ants uh-huh. that is completely destroying this island that we just brought on a boat. Right. And it's like, we now have to take care of this crazy ant situation. They're like killing all these crab that are indigenous right. to it. And it's really scary stuff. I don't know. It well, just seems I, I mean, I think it's a, good, it's a good question to have whether or not we should, not just can we, you know? Well, the reason that we build these things now in such ridiculous clean rooms is that we're afraid of having a bacteria accidentally go to Mars mm-hmm. with one of the rovers and end up propagating or doing something that's unexpected right. and hurting these planets <laughs> in ways that we never would have expected. It was back in the Interstellar episode that I was talking about seeding the oceans with algae in order to change global warming and then algae at that scale, ending up mutating and changing right. and causing like an earth-destroying mm-hmm. pathogen to yeah. come so, out. So there's that like negative side effect of just even sending those kinds of organisms out there and the kind of damage that it could potentially cause. But then in a separate article I read, it's called Directed Panspermia, Moral Obligation or Biopollution. And it was written yeah. by, uh, yeah, it's written by Ian O'Neill, who's a space science producer for Discovery News and has a PhD in solar physics. He's definitely talking my language because I'm thinking, I'm like, what? Oh, you're literally going to co- like brand your fucking planet. So like <laughs> yeah. Earth brand is better out there. Like who knows if the if the aliens even want it? You know, who right. knows if the solar system even and wants it? And if it was panspermia, then well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a funny element of like, who knows if anybody wants any brand yeah. that's being advertised. He basically raises the question of like, are we just as humans wanting to create a cosmic monopoly? You mm. know, which it, it goes against the prime directive the because isn't that like that's a general order that like you're not supposed to fuck with the normal development that's of any... from star trek yeah the prime direct yeah. that's why i'm asking you <laughs> yeah well uh, you you didn't mention that it was from star trek okay. so i just wanted to make sure everybody knew no that's the idea that you should not interfere with a culture that has not yet developed space travel right you don't want to let them know that there's other planets out there and right. that there's like a whole federation of space people but they, just... they're constantly breaking that rule mm-hmm. in the in the show they're like right. constantly like well we got it i mean these people are committing an atrocity we right. got to affect their lives well yeah i mean again the classic <laughs> human imperialism right you're always going to be like well i know we had that written down but in this anymore. case discretion yeah. Yeah. requires i change that um, ian goes he talks again about okay what if quote-unquote life is just the universal equivalent of some kind of infection, right? We talk about that in in mm. the Matrix, like Mister Anderson. An infection you're of the universe. All, bacteria. Like, <laughs> you're yeah. a virus. You're a virus. <laughs> I mean, kind of makes sense. And even in the thing that mm. the alien or the whatever was going, the thing was spread as a virus. Yeah. It, like yeah. you couldn't tell who had it and who doesn't, and blah blah blah. I was definitely thinking about it as like an allegory for infectious disease. And Hell yeah. And just the fear that you have of like, do you, are you the one that has it? Can mm-hmm. I stand around you? Can, do you have the Ebola or do you? I don't want to get it. Well, that's why I think, you know, there's so many things going on in this movie. It seems like so much of is just about human paranoia. And mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Let me finish off Ian O'Neill's quotes. He says, quote, I'm all for spreading the human influence around the galaxy, but I think this can only be considered if we physically go to these alien worlds to evaluate mm-hmm. these places in person before we start setting up home. Blindly sending life from Earth to habitable worlds and planet-forming accretion disks seems a little reckless, especially as we have no clue about the consequences if we started impregnating unsuspecting planets, which is exactly That's what like you said. A, yeah, that was my first thought off right. of this. Well, are you, do you have a PhD in solar physics, Well, Gerald? maybe I should. Maybe you should. But he finishes it with this, and I put this in bold, just because we've got it doesn't mean the rest of the universe wants it. 
So if you oh, got man. it, don't flaunt it, humans. <laughs> and sit the fuck down. Well, because I kind of said this before with when it seemed like you you were a little bit supportive of the idea that like we have to continue our species. I'm like, supportive of it. Yeah, I'm I am not of, for this exact reason. I'm supportive of intelligently and not recklessly mm -hmm. going about expanding. You know, I don't think that we have to stay on Earth mm -hmm. in the same way that I don't think that we had to stay in Africa, right. we didn't have to... Well, okay, so take the safety aside. We're doing it safely. Okay. Why is human biology better than any other alien biology? Well, for one, right now, we don't even know that there is any other alien mm -hmm. biology. Mm -hmm. So once we find that out for sure and what that's like, I think this conversation can totally change. Mm -hmm. Going off of the assumption of right now, I'm saying like we need to start expanding and learning more about our surroundings. Mm -hmm. I like the idea, and I never really thought of it before, that... Humanity is an infection of the universe right. and that like we're kind of like a cancer that's like built because yeah. we're using the materials that are around us that both make us up and make up the earth. Totally. I want to contact other aliens mm -hmm. and I want to like if there are other intelligent species, I want to go spend a week. I want to do an exchange program. Right. You know? Right. Like, yeah, well, no, I, in terms of cultures, even in the world, right. it's like I'm all for understanding, but we're not able, we're not very good at doing that. We're not no. very good at just sharing and having that be the thing. We're very good at like dominating and being imperialists and doing that sort of right. thing. So I would hope that by the time we even discovered that there were other intelligent life forms in the universe, that maybe we'd be a little bit more evolved in just our mentality of feeling like, right. can you take ownership of the universe without fucking taking ownership of the universe? Well, that's the thing. I, I always like going back to that short-term pessimism, long-term optimism thing. I really do think that if you take a long view of humanity, we're more compassionate and understanding of other species and of each other than mm -hmm. we ever have been before. Mm -hmm. And that's a continuum that, although with short-term pessimism takes steps back, mm -hmm. does continue forward right. in the long view of time. So I feel like when we're ready to do this... I hope yeah. we're ready to do this. Right. And I don't see that happening in our lifetime. No, no, no me no, either. Not but at all. understanding other cultures affects us in a way where we can understand how to approach. I, I come back to PETA wasn't a thing mm -hmm. a few hundred years sure, ago. Sure, sure. There are people now who care about the treatment of animals. And I think that that's going to increase mm -hmm. and increase until the point when we're leaving this planet and actually talking seriously about colonization. Right that we can maybe do it in a responsible way. Well, and also that kind of like prejudice or that, that idea of the other is generally propagated by some sort of fear monger who's like yeah. doing that for their own political gain. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like I, I would like to think that people aren't naturally like, oh, I've... I, I know that they're the enemy and I know no, I have to do this. There are studies that I mean, are done that it's all learned behavior. Yeah. So I don't see why we couldn't eventually get past that. Mm -hmm. Although, what you know, that's one of the biggest struggles of modern right. humanity. It's like we should be afraid of, like on the food chain can like kill us or whatever. It's just we're so afraid of each other. I guess that that's sort of where I go where I'm like, we haven't even been able to fucking deal with our own species and right. be able to be peaceful with our own species. So I'm very, very cynical right now about the idea of us being able to be respectful to other species. Well, that, that's the funny thing to me is that the argument that you can make is that when we do meet another species, we're going to unite mm -hmm. against them. Against them. And so it's like we are looking for an other and when there's like a much larger alien mm -hmm. species, then we can all look at each other and see that we are the same. Right. And then eventually you get to a place where it's like, no, nah, Earth, the Earth is the thing and I we're xenophobic say, in that way. And then I can't believe I'm about to be like, yeah, like in Game of Thrones, because <laughs> guys, just so you know, I watched 
all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones in the past like three weeks or so. And I'm thinking of like, they're all fucking killing each other until they're like, oh yeah, there's the army of the dead that's coming right. our way and we have to like build our fucking All your little squabbles of yeah. kings Doesn't and mean princes. And t- so to nonsense. some degree, I like the idea of being like, all of this bullshit that we're dealing with down on earth, our political battles, our wars, our religious wars and all of our, that shit means nothing in the grand cosmic right. scheme. Right. I'm not suggesting that we should immediately go for colonization now. We should go for exploration Agreed. now. And we should continue to refine our skills yeah. and our understanding of I mean, I definitely agree life. with the idea of having to visit the planet instead of just like blowing your fucking load into the universe right. and seeing where exactly. it lands, you know? There is a part of me that's like, if the planet's ending soon, maybe it shouldn't be necessarily panspermia that we do. Maybe it should be like a more extreme version of the Voyager probe. Mm Mm-hmm where it's not like infecting other people right. or like continuing their species. It's keeping the memory of them alive right. and who they were. Yeah. So maybe there's a way to keep our memory alive that's a little safer for other species. But we're also at a place where we don't even know that there's anything out there mm-hmm. to fuck up. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about how it's more than likely that there is something out there. Totally. The idea of Earth brand trademark is <laughs> gross. And yeah. I want to throw it up. Because <laughs> yeah. that's all my biggest thing. I'm like, of course, I am all for information. I'm all for learning right. and discovery. I'm just so over the fucking profit motive. I mean, yeah. One of the definitions of life is that life tries to survive Mm -hmm. and propagate itself. Yeah. I guess I just, like, I'm not as hell-bent on specifically human life being the thing that propagates or that continues. I think maybe some kind of hybrid or some kind of, you know, continued evolution or even all new. I just, to some degree, like things to just play out without, adding, <laughs> like, having that initial moving hand or whatever. At the same time, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not in fear of our planet ending in the next 10 years, so it's easy for me to be like, fuck that. Like, stay where you are, you know? <laughs> right. Life finds a way it sure does going back to the beginning of what we were talking about with panspermia initially it means that there was life already existing in the world Mm -hmm. that then got frozen came through space and landed here Mm -hmm. but then you don't solve the question of where did life begin if it began on another planet then it must begin everywhere like Mm -hmm. the i don't think it makes sense to me that all life in the universe came from one thing that then had panspermia no i don't i don't think so either i'm sure that there are cases where life began on a planet and then panspermia did happen Mm -hmm. to nearby planets from there Mm -hmm. including maybe even earth but i was looking into the whole idea of being able to freeze something and then bring it back to life okay and cryogenics is a very difficult thing Because when you freeze, say, human tissue and then you try to bring it back to life, ice crystals form in the cells and actually break the cell walls and completely destroy the living tissue. Oh, wow. There's new stuff in cryogenics that are being worked on involving nanoparticles to heat tissues at an equal rate which means ice crystal formation would be avoided. Okay. They want to use this for hearts and lungs and donated organs because right now, keeping organs viable for transplant only lasts four hours on ice. And half of the organs that are donated are just thrown away because they didn't make it to the patient in time. Oh my God. 22 people die every day in the United States while waiting for organ transplants. If only half of these discarded organs were transplanted, then it's been estimated that the wait list for organ transplants would be gone in two to three years. So if we can, if we can just increase the amount of time that we're keeping organs on ice, which this new technique involving cryogenics can do, then we'll be able to remove the entire wait list 
Wow, that's incredible. Well, because we we were talking, I forget which episode we were talking about, like with nanometers and building things on the nanoscale. I think that was in Virtuosity. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a perfectly practical use for mm -hmm. if you're on a really, really, really small scale. Mm -hmm. They mixed silica-coated iron oxide nanoparticles in a solution and applied an external magnetic field to generate heat. The process was tested on several human and pig tissue samples. It's only viable right now for really small samples like sperm and embryos, mm -hmm. but in the future they might be able to get it to be wow. like better for hearts and lungs. No, what are, isn't there like this might be like an old wives' tale? I thought Michael Jackson had like a cryogenic sleep chamber. I didn't look Wasn't into that, that but I, I totally <laughs> I mean, I believe thing? it. I thought that that was a thing. There are things where you can go and freeze yourself after your death, and then they'll like keep you on ice until we figure out a method to, to thaw you. Right. But oh, like just in case, like just in case one day we figure this out. But more than likely, like that building's gonna get destroyed, and you're just gonna like be in there. Right? No I one's like, know. oh God, world's ending. I'm dragging Walt Disney with me. Exactly. Like some yeah, yeah. somebody's like, well, Walt has to survive. Uh, yeah, but what about Walt? So I wanted to talk about a bunch of Arctic and Antarctic expeditions. Do you know what's at the South Pole right now? No. It's a statue of Vladimir Lenin. Why? In the 50s, some Soviets went there and put a statue of Lenin at the South Pole. Okay. <laughs> like, it's been there and the only thing there for Oh, my God. I didn't know years. that. So anybody, like, who's go heading to the South Pole, you know you made it when you see Lenin. But back in, like, the late 1800s and early 1900s, we were, like, just trying to get places. Right. Nobody had been to the North Pole and nobody had been to the South Pole. And there was an expedition called the Terra Nova Expedition. It was led by this guy, Robert Falcon Scott, who was basically obsessed with reaching the South Pole first. And he finally got there and he didn't make it back. He got to the South Pole, but he didn't make it back. Oh, no. And the thing that especially sucks is when he showed up at the South Pole, he had found that a Norwegian team led by a guy named Amundsen had beaten him there by two weeks. Oh. So he was like, fuck, and then died on the way back. Oh, man. They found their bodies eight months later. They had discovered plant fossils, and they had proved on their dying way back that Antarctica was once forested and joined to other continents, and they were 11 miles from the next depot when they died. Oh, shit. So they actually proved that Antarctica is a landmass and once was joined with other continents. Oh, because the theory before that was that it was kind of its own well, place. Well, I'm actually going to get into the North Pole, which is entirely an ice ocean, which is no landmass, but the South Pole does have a landmass. Okay. And so this was proven by Scott as he died. There's a station at the South Pole that's called the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. So that's Amundsen, the guy who scooped him, mm -hmm. and then Scott, the guy who died. Right. And during the first evening of winter, every time that they're there, they watch the thing. Oh, yeah. I saw that, too. I yeah. thought that was cool. I so, mean, yeah, it's pretty... There's not that many movies that take place in Antarctica, no, right? No, it's kind I of guess. Like, but it's like, what a weird thing to be like. Yeah. Every know. year, annual. So get get in the everyone. headspace of the thing Yeah. before I we're going to like hole up in here for the next four months. Yeah, just to get spooked. Because I read it a thing from a guy who went to a South Pole expedition. He was saying, like, when we first arrived, it was unbelievably cold. At night, my breath vapor would condense against the ceiling of my tent and instantly freeze. Ugh. As soon as the slightest gust of wind hit the tent, frost would fall on my face. 
That's crazy. He's like, that is possibly the worst feeling ever. And that was during the 24 hours of sun. That yeah. wasn't when it was nighttime out there. I am not trying to hang out in Antarctica. No, me no either. Separately, there was a big expedition to the North Pole. What's really interesting to me about this was there was an idea called transpolar drift. Uh-huh. <laughs> the idea came from a shipwreck that occurred on one side of the Arctic, and then they found the ship in the ice like years later on the other side. And somebody theorized that the ice actually flows very slowly across, maybe across the North Pole. Okay. And this guy, Nansen Fram, built a special ship that could freeze in ice, froze it into the ice pack, and just waited on the ship for years for it to take him to the North Pole. What? Yeah. 18 months in, he got fed up and took a dog sled and a couple other people out and tried to find the North Pole. They wound up not being able to find it, but they hit the furthest north record of Uh all time and then finally made it back and then waited another two years before his ship finally made it out of the ice. I don't even know what to say to that. (laughs) Isn't that insane? Yeah. (laughs) Like, what a crazy idea. Like, I'm just going to go freeze my ship into the ice and wait. Yeah. And then I'm going to be one of the greatest explorers ever. He had to have done a lot of writing or something. Like, come on. (laughs) What are you... Oh, other people who were like polar expedition yeah. people. Yeah. However you call it. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, dude, don't do this. Yeah. This is a terrible idea. And he like went and did it. And he proved that the Arctic had no landmass and was only ice. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, more power to you. I appreciate that. I mean, I mean even when you think about even just like, you know, nature photographers or, you know, photojournalists or whatever, like some of the crazy situations they are in for so long. Like mm-hmm. even the people making planet Earth. It's like living in these crazy conditions, let alone making those early on discoveries about like before we knew that Antarctica had mass to it. Yeah. Interesting. What a long expedition. Like, how did they stock up that boat properly? Like, what a a nightmare. I mean, I thought you were going to tell me that they died, but no, that's that's the craziest thing to me about it is that he froze his boat into the Arctic polar ice, went across the north of the planet and then like was fine. There's a thing called the Dyatlov Pass incident, Mm -hmm. and it was in 1959. An experienced hiking group went into the Ural Mountains. I don't know if it's Ural or Ural. I think it's Ural. The Ural Mountains. (laughs) They established a camp, and then disaster struck. During the night, something made them tear their way out of their tents from the inside, run from the campsite while in underwear, and they all died. Soviet investigators determined that six victims died of hypothermia while others showed signs of physical trauma. One victim had a fractured skull, while another had brain damage but without any sign of distress to their skull. What? Additionally, a female team member had her tongue missing. What? And the investigation concluded that an, quote, unknown compelling force had caused their deaths. Whoa. Because there were no survivors, people don't really know what happened. Right. Some theories include an animal attack, hypothermia in general, an avalanche is a popular theory, infrasound-induced panic, which was crazy. I didn't know what this was, but I guess low-frequency sound waves that can continue incessantly drive people insane. So that was like one of the theories was that there was this infrasound induced panic so like people were half beaten up the the campsite baffled the search party the student who found the tent said that the tent was half torn down half covered with snow it was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind investigators said that the tent had been cut open from the inside oh my god eight or nine sets of footprints left by people who were wearing only socks a single shoe or were even barefoot could be followed leading down toward the edge of a nearby woods 
They found the first two bodies shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The branches of the tree were broken up to five meters high, indicating that they might have like climbed up to see where their camp was. Three of the skiers had fatal injuries. According to Dr. Boris Vozdrozdenki. I'm sure that's correct. <laughs> The force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparing it to the force of a car crash. That is wild, dude. The bodies had no external wounds related to bone fractures as if they had been subjected to a well, high so, level of pressure. Okay, let's, let's think about this. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is a, some kind of supernatural thing, or do you think that... I mean, I'm even thinking, like, what if one of the campers went a little cuckoo and, right. you know, if, if you someone's know. trying to get out from the inside, then mm -hmm. maybe it is, maybe it's a, you know, all of the thing kind of paranoia scare of mm -hmm. like, is it you? Is it you? Was is it, it an you? alien or is it actually just you? Yeah. I know I'm human. I What about you? Like, that's... <laughs> to me, the two best theories are, so in people in the final stages of hypothermia have a thing called paradoxical undressing. Uh-huh. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah. Well, they, they get really hot and they take off all their clothes. Exactly. That's what, that's like... what Emile Hirsch did in Into the Wild. Oh, I need to see slash read that. Oh, yeah. It's a great, it's a great story. Yeah. They lose rationality as their nerves are damaged. They feel incredibly irrationally hot and they strip off all their clothes to cool themselves as they're freezing to death. Right. And because of that, people who have frozen to death are often found naked and are misidentified as victims of violent crime. Uh, okay. Because they're like, ah! Yeah. Ugh, they like, like scratch yeah, themselves yeah, and they're they, just going nuts. And, and so you just find this person who's like frozen naked. The other theory that I think is more likely is the avalanche theory. Mm -hmm. This isn't very well regarded because the area that this happened in is like very unlikely to have avalanches. Mm -hmm. But let's say it did. The idea that the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent because an avalanche had covered the entrance or because they were scared that an avalanche was about to hit, it's like better to have a potentially repairable slit in the tent than risk being buried alive under tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to and the so safety of yeah. the nearby woods where trees would help slow the oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire. Others tried to return to the tent and recover their clothing, but it was too cold and they all froze to death. Mm -hmm. And then they think that the tongue removal was likely removed by scavengers and ordinary predation is what okay. one person's theory is. Okay. We don't know exactly what happened, but the, just the idea of a group of people going out on a hiking yeah. thing who were like experienced, then you show up and there's just this massive crime scene yeah. that you don't know what to make of where nothing makes sense right and something really scary must have happened totally now i remember learning about avalanches when i was learning to be an emt and like they're scary one of the things that they told you to do if you ever find yourself in an avalanche is if you have the presence of mind to do this keep putting your hand out in front of your face and pushing the snow out. And the reason for this is once you're under the snow, your breath will melt the snow that's directly around you and then the ice will refreeze, creating a perfectly sealed environment. Uh, and then you suffocate to death. Oh my God. And so pushing out the snow is to create a bigger pocket to allow them more time to maybe find you. Holy shit. So you know you're going to get buried, but... Yeah, you're just like, let me give them as much time as I can to come find me. Oh, my God. Now, what causes an avalanche? Well, lots of different things. Yeah. Earthquakes can cause avalanches. It's really that there's an extraordinary buildup of snow that is in a precarious situation. Right. And then as it starts to melt in the spring. It's like, Django. Yeah. And then <laughs> <laughs> if you ever hear from the top of a mountain, Django, Django! fucking run. Put your hands out in front of you. Push <laughs> yeah, the snow yeah. yeah, I've never even. I, I, it's so funny when I think about some of those crazy disasters mm -hmm. that you end up inside like if you ever end up in a fucking tornado but i've never even thought about what it would be like with an avalanche yeah i, I, I mean that's I, insane so scary and just like 
being out there, everything's white, and, yeah. and like, and then not if being it's able a, to see, yeah, and, yeah, like there are things like whiteouts, which are huge blizzards, and you just like, how are you supposed to be able to see your snow-covered cabin? Yeah, that's why I have no plans of going to any of these places. <laughs> no, I don't. You like... know, honestly, like even the even in the thing, the, the the researchers or whatever, it's just like, God, that is a fucking decision you're making for yourself to be like, I'm gonna spend time in a really really cold and isolated right. place now. Yeah, <laughs> where I might even get cabin fever. Yeah, exactly. Are you Which, gonna talk about cabin fever? Yeah. Well, what does that mean besides that that shitty horror movie? It's not like a diagnosable thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a person may experience cabin fever in a situation such as being in a simple country vacation cottage. And you just kind of feel like you're closed up or like you it's like your space is It's a combination of claustrophobia and lack of human interaction. Okay. A person will just want to sleep or have a distrust of anyone that they're with or have an urge to go outside even in the rain, snow or hail or right. uh, you know, a therapy for cabin fever is as simple as getting out and interacting with nature. Oh, yeah. Re- go outside, you fuck. <laughs> Research oh. has demonstrated that even brief interactions with nature can promote improved cognitive functioning and overall That's well-being. so funny. It's almost like human beings are like social creatures and they're supposed to interact yeah. with the world around them. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I think this was happening on long voyages across the ocean yeah, yeah. or like when you're snowed in and you literally can't leave your snowy mm-hmm. cabin until right. the spring and you've like got... You know. Or if you're Snowden and you're nope. in Russia and you can't really do much about He's, that. Holy shit. <laughs> Snowden is snowed in. Boy, I love the flamethrower in this movie. Uh-huh. Kurt Russell takes it to the thing like, holy shit. Okay, so let's see. When did Alien come out? Three years before this. Three years before. 79. And that had serious flamethrower action. I wonder oh, yeah. if there was any... Like, people really responded to the flamethrower. Let's yeah. throw this guy in there. I would like to think at the very least, like, you know, they're in the ice, so right. maybe some flames, you know, yeah. at least visually, yeah, that would totally. make sense to do. But flamethrowers are a much older technology than I thought. Really? They were originally invented in the first century in Greece. What? Yep. The concept of throwing fire as a weapon dates from the Byzantine era. Okay. They used rudimentary hand-pumped flamethrowers on board naval ships, and they shot out this thing that was called Greek fire. Greek fire could continue burning while floating on the water, and so they were able to like burn other boats like crazy. The secrecy of the composition of Greek fire was so strict that the composition has been lost forever and remains a source of speculation. No! I want to know how. I know. It was Not some kind of lighter fluid that they right. figured out. I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I have a, a feeling. A lot of people that were lit. Oh, my God. There must have been hand pumps that went wrong, and then they just burned just themselves up. Blast themselves in the face yeah. with flames. I mean, it's it's kind of that thing from Game of Thrones. Wildfire stuff. Yeah. That they have that green shit that oh, they yeah. blew everything up with. That goes cuckoo ca I, th- I, mean, I yeah, feel all... like that was inspired by the idea of Greek fire. Uh, totally makes sense. It's so interesting to think about, yeah, those early civilizations. Like, the idea of even alchemy, I know that's not like a thing anymore. Just like, yeah. oh, we've got these chemicals. We're not quite well, sure I've what I I've always thought about, like, the invention of gunpowder. Yeah. And what a moment that was. Yeah. Because you just put like a couple of pieces of dust together and then all of a sudden like it changes the world. Dude, I remember the first time I put a Mentos into my Pepsi (laughs) and it went fucking crazy and it was amazing. And I was like, I'm a scientist. Like before YouTube? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, God. What? I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, man. Be- way before the internet. No, I'm just kidding. No, way before YouTube, though. It was like the child's play shit of Pop Rocks and swallowing. <laughs> Remember that idea yeah, that, like, if you swallow the Pop Rocks and the Pepsi po- yeah, it'll whatever. explode your stomach right. or whatever. This, to me, was it was like Which, the next step up for that, but it was fucking cool. But it also makes me feel like maybe we shouldn't be eating both Pepsi or Mentos <laughs> if this is the combination, if this is what happens, is like explosives. What happens if you do eat a Mento after drinking a bunch of Pepsi? I don't think I'm going to do that. Because I don't know about that. I know the that Pepsi, the Pop Rocks thing is yeah. bullshit. Because, Pop Rocks thing is bullshit, right. but the Pepsi thing, don't you have to like seal it up, right? Oh, okay. Maybe it's the like because in your body, and you, then can, can, you can burp You can and burp. Stuff. You're just going to burp like crazy. If, I guess that's a new torture device, maybe. Oh. Just like oh, put some Pepsi and Mentos Force in someone's mouth and duct tape their mouth open and be like, <laughs> try this fresh maker. <laughs> this movie's crazy, dude. I again, I think I commented multiple times about Kurt Russell's hair. It's yeah. just, and just those buns. so iconic. Yeah, yeah. What? Bun? Oh, his buns. <laughs> his buns. <laughs> Did I comment on his buns? I think we commented yeah. on his buns. Just, just, oh yeah, because I think he was, I think he, was he was wearing like, like very eighties jeans yeah, or something. Yeah, we were like, look jeans. at those buns. And I and so I was funny. just like, yeah, he was like a guy who had buns. That wasn't yeah. a butt. <laughs> those were buns. That is fucking funny. This is just like a random tidbit that I found. So in in eighty two, before it was released, Fangoria magazine had a contest called Draw the Thing. To see if anyone could guess what it was going to look like, and the winner won a trip to Universal Studios. But you're like, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm, what? I, I want to know. Did it look like, like Kurt Russell or anybody but Kurt Russell? Or, in that movie? Yeah, because I'm like, it looked like all sorts of things. It, it looked like it looked like a dog. It, it looked, looked like, like weird. At one point, a guy's head comes off, and then it sprouts spider legs. I'm thinking maybe that's what it is. Like maybe they drew some fucking tentacles or something. Because there okay. was it's like it's the person, but there was the weird like the eyes bobbing out of the head, and then the, like the, there yeah, was like a, a, lot a of weird fusion reaching. of two heads as it was like caught halfway through morphing into somebody and then like it was killed and so it stays in this state of like a melded two-headed monster right and And another side note mcready which is kurt russell's name i just love that Uh, mr mcready two people turned down the role of this oh yeah and it is no surprise to me jeff bridges and nick nolte and I'm like, wow, Kurt Russell like is like the love child of Jeff Bridges and Nick Nolte. Wow. They knew so the type that they wanted. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, those are the three. Like, they could all be brothers. Like, yeah. I would be I would be fine with Bridges could have been good in this. Oh, yeah. He might have yeah. brought a different energy to are it. Are they the but... same age? They all look pretty good, except for Nolte. He looks fucking <laughs> he like a face. nightmare. Kurt Russell's 66. Jeff Bridges is 67. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're like, poor man's Jeff Bridges, Kurt Russell. <laughs> Although I would not say a poor man's. I would say well, a wealthy, wealthy man. Yeah, Jeff Bridges, it's not as bad as like Tom Selleck turning down the role of Indiana Jones. Oh, you big know? mistake. Yeah. or like He turned it down? He turned it down. It was just like, this is silly. Yeah, he was like, this isn't going to be You're a, a thing. You're a dummy. And the, I feel well, like there's so many of those. I wish I had some more at the ready. I have one other. Billy Crystal turned down the role of Buzz Lightyear. Because he was like, this animation thing is weird. And then like was like, oops. oops. Okay, I'll be your little monster in Monsters, Inc. Oh my, of course. <laughs> that is so funny. I love that. Yeah. Oh God, it's one of those things. I mean, being a performer or whatever, I'm just sort of like, you know, you find this balance where you're like, no, I'm only going to do the stuff that I want to do. Right, yeah. Right, you, I right. can I can tell what's a stink fest and right, what's yeah. not. And then you realize, like, these huge mega, mega pictures. I think that happened with Sean Connery, too, because he was, like, supposed to be in a couple of superhero movies uh-huh. and then, like, turned them all down and then they were, like, huge, right. huge. 
and then he was like, put me in this League, League of, of Extraordinary, Extraordinary Gentlemen, Gentlemen thing. Like, and he, that was it. And like, uh. and just failed. And he was like, God damn it. I thought that the super kids wanted the superheroes. Oh my God. That's so stupid. <laughs> Should we do favorite lines? Let's do favorite lines. I think I only have one. I don't even know that I have one. <laughs> when it comes to like the dialogue of them interacting with each other, there's a lot of paranoia. And I guess the only one I have is, if I was a perfect imitation, how would you know it was really me? And I think that's just interesting in the sense that mm. we always talk about like what is consciousness, like what who who are yeah. we, what makes us us. And so it's like if you see some somebody that looks like your friend, but meanwhile it's actually the thing below, right. and you have no idea, and there's no way of telling except for doing some weird well, blood test, which is what they do. Right. Well, there really is a thing where people will wake up and think that everybody around them has been replaced with a replicant. Right. And where body that, snatcher style, right? Where, well, where that idea comes from is that in those people the emotion center of the memory is divorced from the actual part of the memory oh, okay so they can look at their brother mm -hmm. for example and know that it's their brother but because they don't feel the emotion that they've associated with their brother their entire life uh -huh. they think that it's an imposter and must not be the real person interesting so that's like the human brain. Yeah. This makes me feel like I want to do, I really, because I've never seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Me I've either. never seen anything with the pod people. Like I've seen the faculty, right? Which is basically yep. our generation's <laughs> I love the body snatchers. But it's so great because they go through that whole, mm -hmm. remember that whole scene where they're like, snort these drugs. Yeah, yeah. That's that was their, basically the, the blood thing, scene yeah. in the thing. Yeah. Gosh, it's almost like that movie was paying homage <laughs> to, to all of this stuff oh my that we hadn't seen. <laughs> Just thinking about like the late 70s, early 80s remakes of sci-fi classics mm -hmm. between The Fly, The Thing, and this Body Snatchers from 78 with mm -hmm. Donald Sutherland, mm -hmm. I think we should do that as kind of like a trilogy. I think so. I think that's a great idea. So let's do that next week. Let's do that. Oh, also, let me make a, a side note. It was 25 minutes into the movie until I was like, no, but that's the thing. Yeah, I get it. Our show's like, called, what? no, but that's a thing, but we're doing the thing. I, yeah, cares, I'm but... glad that we made it this far into the podcast before right. I mentioned it, too. <laughs> exactly. But... Uh, but anyway, if there's anything that's ever made you guys be like, no, but that's like a thing, you guys, we really want to hear from you. Yeah, find us at No But That's a Thing on Facebook, at No But That's a Thing on Twitter. You can email us at No But That's a Thing at gmail.com. And please rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, definitely do that. that helps. Also, if you at all want to like interact with us or follow us individually on Twitter, you can do that. I'm at It's a Joy Amia. And I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. Ah, straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.